Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. But hold fast, Brian. This isn't just any other episode. This is the first in a new miniseries. This one on the films of 2003, when the nominees for Best Picture were Mystic River, Seabiscuit, Lost in Translation, Lord of the Ring, Return of the King, and today's movie, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, directed by Peter Weir. Brian, let fly the trailer. All right, lads. Touch wood, Mr. Blakeney. Turn three times. May the Lord of Saints preserve. Just a broken house. You're in very good hands. Seven weeks sailing, and he happened on our exact position. Well, then perhaps he was looking for us. Damn, he was good. An act of war will cripple them. With basic repairs, we can get home as we are. We're not going home. The power of nature will threaten them. Our enemy has more than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers, and we are supposed to stop them. Torn between fulfilling his duty. Captain's not called Lucky Jack for no reason. Phantom or no, Lucky Jack, I love her. And the lives of the men he commands. Steady! He must face the invincible. He fights like you, Jack. A hunter becomes the hunted. Well then, there's not a moment to lose. Two feet six inches, sir. The men would follow you anywhere. As a friend, I would say that we should have turned back weeks ago. It's leadership they want. Strength. Find that within yourself, and you will earn their respect. Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Those trailers, um, we've made fun of all the voices, but they, there's a lot more words to read on the screen during the trailers, uh, the more modern they get. Anyway, so there this, are, there are. Uh, the budget for this movie was $150 million and it made $211.6, so it made $61 million. Mm-hmm. That was kind of considered not enough to justify going, diving into like a, a full-blown franchise so do you think 61 million is, is a small amount of money or, or is it a lot of money to you? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> to me, to me, it's a, it's a very small amount of money, Brian, oh, you know, you know, my net worth, you can't. <laughs> but no, I, I understand that because the production was so enormous. I mean, yeah. $150,000, I mean, million dollar budget that that's really, really big. So they it were is. probably hoping to double that. At yeah, the box probably office. so. It opened number two in the box office in November, 2003 behind Elf. Oh, 
All right. So <laughs> this begs the question, elf or master and commander? It does indeed. <laughs> I guess it depends on what time of year we're watching the movie, right? Well, November. I mean, it came out in November. So master and commander, if you want to, if you want to challenge elf, you know, Will Ferrell in tights, then you better bring your A game. I love um, elf. This movie won two Oscars, cinematography and sound editing. It was nominated for a bunch more and lost all of those to Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Uh, I was nominated for Best Picture, nominated for Best Director, Peter Weir, and then a bunch of other kind of technical ones. This was the um, year that, that Lord of the Rings really cleaned up, right? Yeah, Return of the King was, was big, big time. There, is, there was a prequel announced in uh, this month. Actually, June okay. 2021, a prequel was announced to be an active development. So, oh, wow. Um, so, so Crow's coming back. I don't know if it's Crow. I mean, how could he do oh. a prequel? Like, he's older and heavier now. Yeah, so I guess how that's could he true. Do that? Listen, they can do the de aging now. You've seen The Irishman. <laughs> that was the worst part of The Irishman. <laughs> oh, so, come on. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Just a quick note on Peter Weir, since we're talking about the Oscars with this movie. So Peter Weir has been nominated a bunch of times. Besides Master and Commander, five years earlier, he was nominated for Best Director for The Truman Show. Before that, he was nominated for writing on the green card in 91. And he was nominated for Best Director twice before that for Dead Poet Society in 1990 and Witness in 1986, the Harrison Ford classic. Um, of those three, yeah, Witness, Dead Poet Society, and The Truman Show, what's your pick? Ooh, I would love to see all three of those over again, <laughs> but I guess I'll have to lean toward Dead Poet Society. What about you? I thought you'd go Dead Poets. I'm going to go Truman Show. I feel like Truman Show is just one of those kind of underappreciated sort of gems. I love yeah. that movie. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, that he put Robin Williams in a serious role. In Dead Poet Society, and he put Jim Carrey in a serious role in the yeah. Truman Show. So he's kind of apparently known for that somewhat. So coming up in this episode, we'll do our Farley Awards. We'll do our Golden Takes. We'll ask each other one question that is designed to help you choose the lesser of two weevils. We will imagine what might have been, and we'll talk trivia, and then do the big reveal. This is for, this is where it gets serious, Mike. The this lesser is no... of two weevils. <laughs> I'm still. Love, I just love how in the movie they take time to give oh, yeah. Russell Crowe like all these dad jokes. Yeah, because he also <laughs> gives that toast where he says, you know, to our wives and sweethearts, may they never meet. May and then he does meet. that little like giggle, little and he does the same after giggle after the weevils. It's it's yeah. it's so good. It so is good. great. <laughs> if you had to choose, if there were no other choice, but you were forced to choose the left, you know, so. But this is, this is a serious episode here because we're in 2003. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to ultimately someday, some month or so in the future, have a finale episode where we choose what really were the top five movies. So keeping, it or, ki keeping or kicking this movie means that um, it's, it's going to keep us, you know, take a slot away from something else. Um, the Farley Awards. First. For our best, for our best. I didn't know if you were going to say something there, but the Farley yeah. Awards, this is for our most <laughs> awesome moment of the movie. And I think before we go into it, we need to acknowledge the worst moment of the movie, which is all of this beetle handling. There's so much <laughs> touching of bugs in this I movie. The it's too much. Come on. It's too much. Maybe see a beetle, show me a beetle once. Don't touch the beetle. 
You don't you don't hold beetles in your hands? Not no, not not as a part of my everyday life. I thought no, you're an outdoorsman. But- no, I'm going to have an indoorsman, Brian. This has been established over and over again. <laughs> but the best moment, that's the big battle set piece at the end for me. I mean, Russell, Crow, Russell Crowe's character orchestrates this attack where the crew disguises themselves and the ship as this whaling vessel. And they paint it. They put a different flag on it. They put on different clothes. They hide their guns and swords sort of under, I, I don't know. I, I don't know any ship terms, Brian. So you're going to have were, to help me along. There were many of them thrown about in this movie, which was very cool. I thought it was, gave a lot of authenticity to it with all the, the weird terms. Yes, but I'm not going to try to replicate those because I'm going to get them wrong. I, I, I don't know anything about ships, but all of that buildup, you know, putting on the disguises, getting ready to trick this enemy phantom ship, a lot of great tension in that buildup. But once the fight starts, and we really get a sense of how naval warfare works, about this close quarters combat. I thought that that was just great. I mean, it was so brutal once they start fighting close up, you know, with point blank gunshots, like sword stabbing the little kids who are kind of a part of this crew getting groomed to be the next commander. They're so involved. And it kind of, it reframes sort of how we think of, um, you know, water-based battles as just kind of being cannon fire. This really recontextualizes it, and I think it really works. And also, it's just super chaotic. You know, a lot of quick cuts, but Weir is really good to keep us oriented. So you feel that chaos without being confused of like, so, you know, where, where are they now? Who are they fighting? Who do we care about? All that's really well done. I just think the scene is really exciting but also kind of just an interesting showcase to show us those naval warfare mechanics, which I didn't really know anything about before going into this. I love the slow-mo moment when Russell Crowe is kind of knocked over and then, you know, it goes to silent, which you see in a lot of war movies, but then you see this like look at the termination on his face as he gets up. And I could feel that kind of that like anger to, you know, retaliate. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So my favorite moment is the beetle. Mike. Oh, are you kidding? When Blakeney. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not kidding. When Blakeney, okay, the young boy, he loses his arm in battle. And Paul Bettany's character, Stephen, um, who in all the novels, you know, his name is Matur- Maturin or Maturin. He is so disappointed. Paul Bettany's character is that he can't go on the, on the island to see the Galapagos and, you know, study nature. And yep. when Blakeney, the little kid, walks up to him and, sa- and hands him this beetle, he says, would you have walked all day on the island? You might, not have, you might, not, you might never have come across it. And Paul Bettany yep. is just like so overwhelmed with the kindness of this kid. And it also captures the wonder of creation that Paul Bettany's character has throughout the reverence. You know, he's like so intense about wanting to see these new species and I just, I'm, I'm a big, I mean, I'm not really an outdoorsman either, but I do love nature and I love watching, like, I like watching documentaries, watching people hold beetles, but not holding them <laughs> myself. And it elevates th- that, that whole element really elevates the movie from purely adventure to something that is also philosophical. You know, it's talking about science and observation versus superstition. Oh, yeah. And it's a, a big lot of part of the movie. It's not it like is. like his character cares about science and the Galapagos, and that's all we get. I mean, there's a big chunk of time that's spent of you know him 
drawing different animals that he's that he's kind of discovering on this island and uh yeah it, it's you you feel that in the script that it's it's a balancing act between those two and that little kid character is great because he's kind of the product of both of them right of the two yeah. sort of different forms of men and of leaders and he's being groomed to kind of be the, the best parts of both absolutely so what's your golden take mike my golden take brian is that master and commander is kind of a great movie that for some reason feels like kind of a boring movie. <laughs> so one of my favorite things to happen on the internet, maybe ever, centers on this film. So a guy on Twitter named Ian McNabb, he tweeted the following, lots of folk complaining about lack of sleep during the pandemic. May I recommend Master and Commander starring the usually captivating, attention-grabbing Russell Crowe. I've never made it past the 10 minute mark. You're welcome. And thanks, Russell. Russell Crowe responded. He tweeted back. That's the problem with kids these days. <laughs> no focus. Peter Weir's film is brilliant and exacting detail oriented epic tale of fidelity to empire and service, regardless of the cost. Incredible cinematography by Russell Boyd. I totally agree with him. And a majestic soundtrack. Definitely an adults movie. And I love this, not only because Russell Crowe goes on Twitter to torch this guy to defend his own movie, not only does he use the word kids these days, but then all of these news outlets covered it, like Variety, IndieWire, The Independent. It was everywhere, Russell Crowe torching this guy on Twitter. And I think that, I, I think that this is good because it's not just funny, but I understand where that guy is coming from because I've seen this movie before. And honestly... I wasn't looking forward to rewatching it for the show. I, I felt like it was this like homework, like an obligation. So I go back and I look in my letterbox. I rated it four stars the first time I saw it. So I don't know why I wasn't looking forward to watching it again, mm -hmm. because then when I rewatched this time, I was totally locked in and really into it. So I guess in conclusion, I sort of feel like the way that a movie makes us feel after the fact in our memories should matter on some level when we're, assessing them after because when i think about some of my favorites from some of our past series like mulholland drive punch drunk love blair witch i still get a charge when i think of them and i guess that's because of the emotion that i have tied tied to those movies and maybe that means that i admire master and commander a lot but i don't have that emotional connection and maybe that makes the experience a little less rich what do you think um well First of all, I saw through you on this because you I saw that you posted about that um, that torching on Facebook. And if you <laughs> recall, I sort of torched you on Facebook saying, I bet Mike is not going to like you? this only because it is a period epic and you don't like period epics. But I saw through you. I think that you were throwing that one up there just to throw me off and say that you're you're, you're pretending to not like this movie because you really do like it. Um, but I think that it is interesting, the pacing. I remember afterward, I watched this movie twice, actually, in the past couple of weeks um, because I was talking it up so much. I'm, I'm actually out of town with my family. And I was telling my dad how much I like this movie because I, I, I love this movie. And he had never seen it. So we like watched it like yes, a couple of days ago in the morning. And um, afterward, I was kind of thinking... I didn't know if he really loved it because I think it is easy to not like this movie because 
there's the pacing of it is so strange. I mean, it's like a war movie with a lot of like classical music sitting in their chambers, a lot of jokes around the, uh, the table and walking across the Galapagos. Like it feels kind of episodic in some ways, but for me, somehow they pull it all together and make it work. And it's, it is interesting because it seems to have some things going against it structurally in that way, but And what you're saying about it kind of being a weird war movie, let's talk about for a second the scene where, you know, Russell Crowe knows that they're being followed by this phantom ship, they keep calling it. And so in order to sort of misdirect the ship, they build this raft out Mm -hmm. of some, you know, some wood that they had on on the ship. And then they put lanterns on it and they kind of they kind of push it in the opposite direction, set it sail so that the enemy ship will see the lights and follow that instead of following the real ship. I thought that was great. It's this really cool detail. This is kind of how warfare works before, you know, radar and things like that, which I never would have thought of, but that's not action. And I think that that's mm-hmm. that's part of what you're getting at, I think, here, right? Because we're, we're talking about war where there's really only one and a half battles, right? Beginning mm-hmm. and end. Yep, it's true. And most of the rest of it is like, we're sitting here with no wind. Oh man, this is so boring. But that's what it was like on the ship. And, and I don't a lot think of... that it's boring. When I was watching it, I, I was I was engaged the whole time. It's yeah. more when I think back on the movie, in my memory, I feel like, like it's a slow burn. But mm-hmm. I, I, it, it's a weird phenomenon because I enjoyed it the first time I watched it clearly if I gave it four stars and I enjoyed it this time. But when I think about it, it feels boring. <laughs> my golden take. Go for it. In our 1999 episode, you talked about American Beauty being a pre-9/11 movie, which I thought mm-hmm. was very interesting, and uh, I thought it was, it was definitely a golden take. Well, I'm going to sort of piggyback on that because, to me, this is maybe the first great post-9/11 movie. This is about leadership going into battle, big themes, patriotism, duty, and it was made. After 9-11, you know, we're talking the 2001, 2000 series. Those are not made after 9-11. You know, this is 2003. So they've had time to kind of do it after 9-11. Whether, I don't know if, you know, if it had, if it was really like conceived after 9-11 necessarily. But the point is, I think that it made me think about what was going on in the world at the time. You know, the Iraq war, you know, George, George W. Bush going into war and having this huge, you know, approval, great approval rating after 9-11. And this movie starts with Hollum, uh, one of the young, one of the, uh, the older, you know, midshipmen, uh, I don't know what, if exactly what they're called, one of the leaders in training, and he's indecisive. And this is kind of setting up the whole themes of the story, like Russell Crowe, like, is his magnetism and his leadership working almost against him in some ways, making him prideful, but you have to go to battle sometimes without every, everything being perfectly clear. And so it's kind of, it's whether, whether you approve or disapprove of whatever happened with like George W. Bush, I think that it's interesting to list, to watch the movie in that context. So post 9-11 movie, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that that's really right. And and on top of all of that, I think it shows the power of displaying confidence. Even mm-hmm. if you don't have it, 
if you display it to your team, it goes a long way. I mean, we talked about this a little bit in, on the Bridge of the River Kwai episode where, you know, that's Alec Guinness's character, right? Like he has to set an example for his people. And Russell Crowe does the same thing here. And it kind of shows that with a certain level of charisma and confidence, you seem like you know what you're doing and then people trust you because of it. But if you show that little bit of, of doubt, if you show that you're indecisive, then it makes you look weak and then your people don't like you. And I think that we watch movies in a very similar way with these actors. You know, movie star charisma could could make a manic pixie dream girl seem um, okay because you're charmed by her. Yeah. So questions. All right. Questions. Pollum. Brian, you want to go first? Sure. Pollum. Again, the, the uh, midshipman who's in training, he's identified as the Jonah on the ship. And he ultimately jumps off. It's pretty sad. It's kind of shocking, you know, picks this rock up and he, he sinks. And I think it's a very Hitchcockian shot where you see him like- Great shot. Disappear down, you know, it's a vertical shot down into the water. It's a great shot. Mm -hmm. So then the wind picks up. So does the movie suggest, is my question to you, that the superstition is true? What's the superstition? That you throw the Jonah off board and your luck resumes. Oh, because, because he felt like he was cursed. Yeah, he was cursed. And there's all this, this tension in the movie of, well, do you really believe that? Yes. And, yes. and Russell Crowe says, I thought the well, same not everything thing is in your book during it, that, that the movie does sort of set that. Oh, I think that we were, we had an internet issue there, but I, 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 I thought the same thing during that part in the movie that, you know, once he's gone, things do improve. And I personally don't think that Peter Weir is saying that the curse is true, but I think that it's saying that there's a power in coincidence. And this is how these sort of superstitions and legends form, because it's very easy to say that, you know, that correlation equals causation. And um, then you form a belief system around it. Mm -hmm. So what's your question mm -hmm. for me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought maybe you were going to have a follow-up there, but nope. Okay, so this is the second Russell Crowe-Paul Bettany pairing that we've covered after A Beautiful Mind. My question to you is, which is better? Master and Commander is far superior in both breadth and strength. No, just kidding. But yeah, I, 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 I think this is much agree. Yeah, much better than Russell than uh, than um, Beautiful Mind. Although the a magnetism. And that relationship is still great in, in A Beautiful Mind. I think that Paul Bettany is great in both movies, but this movie overall is, is definitely better. I don't agree that the magic and their relationship dynamic in A Beautiful Mind is great. I said it in that episode. And I think that specifically what I like so much about their pairing here is I think that Bettany as a character and their relationship is a hundred times better than in A Beautiful Mind. Because in A Beautiful Mind... For most of the movie, Paul Bettany is asked to be super charismatic, super enthusiastic. He's like the perfect friend. He's always there. We find out later why that is. But he's supposed to kind of be this force of like overwhelming good. And to me, that just came off very, very stagey. And here, he plays everything so much lower. You know, he's not trying to be Mr. Charisma. And I think he's more charismatic because of that. You know, I, I believed everything he said. I loved him as a character. I thought he's a great foil to Russell Crowe. And he's going to be on my shortlist for possible best supporting actors when we get to the end of 2003. That's how much mm -hmm. I liked his performance here. So 
after a beautiful mind, I was really surprised that like he was kind of my favorite thing about this movie. Yeah. Paul Bettany. I also, I'm a sucker for what he's actually doing and talking about in the movie. Like all the naturalism is, is really attractive mm-hmm. to me. And, and I, I, I buy that character. Um, so what might've been, tell me yes or no. Russell Crowe was, um, he, he was going to be, he was planning to be in Cinderella man. And he decided to pause Cinderella man so he could make this movie. So in the shuffle, the director for Cinderella man changed because he eventually made it in 2005, but the original, it was eventually made by Ron Howard. So Mm -hmm. what that meant was that another director had to get booted off of the Cinderella man project. And I'm wondering if you would prefer that it was actually directed by Lassa Hallstrom. (laughs) <laughs> wow you, you know what i i have not seen cinderella man you haven't okay because it's, it's been a, a long time it's another it's another <laughs> one me. of those movies that it's it, it feels like a oscar movie of a certain time yeah. and that is why i've sort of avoided it so i can't speak <laughs> to ron howard's version but the version in my head that i imagined cinderella man to be is directed by lassa hallstrom <laughs> so wow that yes that's great i love that that is hilarious okay but, but i'm gonna say no because I've had enough experience with Holstrom to know that I'm never thrilled about his movies. So let's, let's see what Ron Howard can do. Um, Heath Ledger instead of Paul Bettany. Although Paul Bettany is great. What about Heath Ledger in that role? Could you imagine that? Uh, I, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to say no to Heath Ledger in any role. But I just said that Paul Bettany was my favorite part of this movie. Yep. Um, so maybe they can battle it out Cinderella Man style to see <laughs> who can get the role. Okay, okay so... At one point, they were thinking of putting in a love interest for Russell Crowe in this movie, and they were going to put in Kira Knightley as the Ugh. love interest. No, 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 no. Love Kira Knightley. Hard. You don't like? Do you not like Kira Knightley, Hard, or no. you just don't want the love story? Uh, big bolt on what? that. I don't. This movie does not need a love story. The the love it already has one. Russell Crowe when they're when they're meeting these natives, I think on yeah. near the Galapagos, he sees a woman, he makes eye contact with her, they have a moment, and we know in that moment that he's considering, you know, should I bring her on the ship? Should I spend some time with her? But he chooses duty instead. That is enough. That's all we need to know yeah. about his character. That. He is interested, but he's choosing a different priority. Um, and also Kira Knightley. I, I don't know. She's fine, love, but she's the same in everything. I love Kira Knightley. I can't wait till we get to uh, Atonement, which is definitely one of the best movies of the decade, which I'm sure you'll agree with me when we get there. Um, <laughs> I would just like to see Kira Knightley play something that's not in a costume or so upper class. Even <laughs> what I, I think she's in a movie called A Begin Again that's sort of a musical that's in a modern day. But still, she just seems so distant and kind of, I don't know, there's a, there's a very uh, dainty quality that she always puts out. I'd like to see her get her hands dirty. It's a brilliant daintiness, Mike. I guess. Trivia. There were some scenes obviously shot on the water, you can tell, in this movie. And uh, when they were done, or they were done in the same 20 million gallon tank in Mexico that was built for the filming of Titanic. Mm, makes same, sense. Same uh, sense. Yeah. Um, this is just a tidbit about Paul Bettany's life story. First of all, when he was 16, he dropped out of school. <laughs> we love that. Yeah, we love it when actors drop out of high school. 
Um, but his it was because his uh, brother died at age eight. And that was, you know, that shook him, obviously. And he left home and he became a street performer in London, Paul Bettany. Okay. Um, he lived that by playing his guitar, like on the street. Nice. Um, 2003, Paul Bettany married Jennifer Connolly. They met and fell in love on the beautiful mindset. And um, he was like, so this is go back to the, my September 11th uh, theme of this, uh, this episode, because he was like, this debating whether he should ask her out and everything. And he said that it was partly because of September 11th that motivated him, motivated him to bite the bullet and just go, you know, ask her out. Um, gave him I mean, we've, we've courage. seen Jennifer Connelly in a few movies now. I think yeah. he had other reasons to ask her out <laughs> other than nine 11. <laughs> it could be, it could be. Um, she, he says that um, uh, she was his childhood crush since he first saw her in labyrinth in 1986. Nice. Russell Crowe learned violin for this movie, which we love. Don't we love it when they when they learn instruments? We do. I wrote down the same thing. He, he had <laughs> training for three months, and it yes, looks he like he's been playing forever. Yeah, it does. He also, the, it wasn't in the budget to buy the actual old violin, but the, the actual violin was made in 1890, and he bought it with his own money because he wanted to have an authentic violin. Wow. So that's pretty cool. He eventually sold it at an auction for $104,000. That was his uh, divorce auction, right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. After he was divorced, he sold a ton oh, of movie really? memorabilia. Okay. It, huh. the, the, the shorts from Cinderella Man, mm. um, some equipment from Gladiator, this kind of stuff to recoup some of his losses. I pretty see. sad, but that interesting. Uh, last thing is about the, um, the sound effects. So Richard King was the sound designer. He won an Oscar and partly because of, they went to all these great lengths to record the sounds. <clears throat> so to make the sound for the storm, he devised a wooden frame rigged with a thousand feet of line and put it in the back of a pickup truck, drove down the highway at 70 miles an hour <clears throat> and used like this barbecue and refrigerator grill to get the shrieking and the sighing sounds from the ships. Wow. I love that kind of detail. Yeah. That's because, cool. you know, the sounds that you make, it's not always, it, it, you believe it, that it comes from a ship, but they really amp it up. And they did the same thing with a lot of the battle sounds, like, you know, adding, adding to them, using rifle shots in addition to the cannonballs and things like that. So he won an Oscar. Sounds like it was well-deserved. Let's get right into kick it or keep, keep it, it or kick, kick it. it. This is the big reveal, Brian. What are you going to do? I will will wholeheartedly keep the movie for uh, in part because of the naturalism, because it does just elevate the movie. And I, Christopher Hitchens, um, a critic said this, that um, we get a, uh, he gave it a mixed review actually, but he said that when the HMS surprise makes landfall in the Galapagos, we get a beautifully filmed sequence about how the dawn of scientific enlightenment might have felt. And I think that that is what makes this different from just a typical war movie. I don't know. Dare I say it makes it one of the best war movies in the past few decades. Yeah, it even seems a little bit odd to call it a war movie yeah. because it is one. But there is so much other time spent on the foil to war, you know, sort of focusing on um, on nature, on science, on on philosophy as a whole, that maybe it's more than a war movie. Mm -hmm. And you? 
I'm going to say, Brian, I am keeping this as well. I'm going to keep it. Even though it's a period epic? Yes. This is the first movie we're doing of 2003. And so I do feel like I need to preface it by saying, I don't know if it will remain in my top five because, you know, we're going to be watching a lot of other good movies this year. But the Mm -hmm. cinematography, the attention to detail, the awesome special effects, and just getting that look at what naval life was like in a serious way, um, you know, other than like, pirate movies uh i think that i thought that that was all really good and interesting and that it just it deserves to be on the short list for those sort of top five considerations so it is for me there it is it's on the list very good both keeps 2003 also was another captain jack with kira knightley oh yeah what which one was that two back to the caribbean i was number one. Oh, okay i like number one clearly the the other ones one the other ones are almost unwatchable they are but I'm going to have to rewatch number one again to see if it'll, uh, where it fits in the conversation. In our next episode of the 2003 series, we will talk about Lost in Translation, Sofia Coppola's story of love and alienation in Japan, starring Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, looking forward to that. We want to hear from you. Send in your favorite Russell Crowe movie or performance. It seems like this is becoming a recurring theme after Gladiator and The Insider. But send them in and we will read your answers on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by telling your smart speaker to play Best Picture This. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. And for 15 years of golden takes, head over to Letterboxd where you'll find me, Mike Cavalieri. We have done a lot of Russell Crowe because you also forgot A Beautiful Mind. Oh, yeah. Conveniently forgot that one. <laughs> do you have do you have a favorite movie from the past that has been forgotten? Well, become a patron and you can choose one. Go to patreon.com slash best picture this and you can choose a movie for one of our bonus episodes. We've done The Fly, Garden State, Bridge on the River Kwai. We'll be doing Drowning Mona and Pleasantville coming up. So thanks to Chris, Matt, Joey, Spencer, and Maddie for choosing those movies and becoming patrons. Yes. And please remember to rate review and subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts. That really helps us reach new listeners until next time. We'll be taking a break from watching movies so that we can draw pictures of Beatles in our sketchbooks. Kick it!